Well, in our series, Love Everyone Life by Life, we're putting ourselves in the position of learning how to love. And as students of love, our teacher has been Jesus, who demonstrates in a revolutionary way a love that can actually transform us and lead to the transformation of our families, our community, our city, our world. Now, unfortunately, if you read through the stories of the scripture, you'll discover that these disciples, which literally means students, didn't get it often. And it should give us a sense of encouragement because often we don't get it. And in one of these stories, Jesus interacts with the mom of two of his disciples, James and John. Now, anytime you send your mom to go talk to your teacher and you're older than like 12, then you're putting yourself in a precarious position. So she has this private conversation with her sons and with Jesus where she's making an impassioned plea that in this new kingdom that Jesus is starting, that they would get top billing, that they would be at his right and his left. Well, the 10 heard about it and they were mad. Look at what happens in Matthew 20. When the other 10 disciples heard about this conversation, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is saying, I know that the Romans value power and they demonstrate that power by living basically as tyrants and pushing you down, oppressing you. But in my kingdom, this invisible kingdom, this transnational kingdom, everything is upside down. Now, if we hear this, we think, yeah, the crazy Romans, the Roman Empire, man, they were evil. But are we really that much different? I mean, we were taught that greatness means having power, that you've arrived when there's no one to tell you what to do. And in reality, Jesus is saying God's kingdom is completely different than that. It's not the amount of power you have. It's the depth of servanthood in your heart that forges greatness. Well, the disciples are slow learners. Uh, In that same passage, there's this moment where the disciples are walking along with Jesus and crowds are at this point in Jesus's ministry are coming around often. And there's two blind men that are shouting out to Jesus, son of God, have mercy on us. And the disciples hear them making this noise. And so they tell them to shut up, be quiet. We don't have time for you. Jesus is too important for you. We're too important for you. Be quiet. We've got things to do. And then Jesus showing this servanthood, this attitude of servanthood actually stops. And he walks up to these two blind men and he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? He just pauses long enough to ask them, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? How can I serve you? The son of God, the creator of the universe is a servant to blind beggars. And they say, we want to see. 
And so Jesus heals them. I wonder how would you answer that question if you were to have a one-on-one conversation with Jesus and he were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that? This passage played a real pivotal role in my life. See, the scriptures are a portal into God's presence and they're most powerful when we actually apply them to our lives. When we read it as history or we read it as poetry, it can be meaningful, but it can be transformative when we put ourselves in the story. Now, when I was in college, I went to Baylor just up the road and Baylor is a Christian school. Don't laugh. Uh, It is founded by Christians, still maintains Christianity as part of its mission. But when I was there in the early 90s, This might surprise you, but there were quite a few hypocrites on campus. In fact, what would happen is people would go out, party on Saturday night, and then wake up about noon, put on their Sunday's finest to go have lunch in the cafeteria to make it look like they'd just been at church. Hypocrites. And I was, as a sophomore, invited to be a part of a a team called the Revival Steering Committee. We were organizing spiritual awakening. That's basically what we were doing. And as part of that, we invited this guy named Dave Busby to come and speak. We had this guy named Louis Giglio and his team lead the worship. And for months, we prepared for this big event. And we had to come up with a theme. And we came up with this cutting-edge theme. It was, life is a compromise. And on the back of the T-shirt, it said, not. You like that? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really cool in 1991, I promise. <laughs> And so as we got closer and closer to the actual date, all these logistics come together and we were praying and we're planning and and we're really just hoping it would be a spiritually significant time in our campus. And it was at the Farrell Center, which is where the basketball team plays. So thousands of people came. And on the first night, Dave Busby spoke. And now he was one of the oldest people on the planet with cystic fibrosis. He was a living miracle. And every night after he would speak, he'd have to go back to his hotel and have to go through this painful process to clear his lungs so that he could speak again the next day. I mean, he was just barely alive at this point. Powerful speaker. But he didn't do something that Baptists do at events like this. He didn't do an altar call. If you grew up Baptist, you know at the end of the service, there's a time where you're supposed to walk to the front right? And it's this kind of walk of shame that you walk to the front and I need what you're talking about. And, and sometimes if you didn't come to the front, we would just keep singing until you did. And, <laughs> and so I remember being in services where people were like, I'm going to the front just to put an end to this thing, right? <laughs> well, he didn't do the altar call. And, and the second night came and he didn't do the altar call again. And the third night came and he still didn't do an altar call. Well, I'm, I'm 19 years old and I'm supposed to be co-directing this thing. In fact, my big, uh, my big moment was I would go out and host. So I was doing the announcements every night. And my co-chair, her name was Frances, and she's six feet tall. And I am not that tall. <laughs> and so I walked out. It was like me and my big sister or something. And, and so... I went to Dave Busby, and I was very intimidated because this guy was a passionate guy. He was a strong personality, and I said to him, you know, Mr. Busby, um, we were hoping that you would do an altar call, and he said, I got something planned for Thursday night. Perfect. All right. My 19-year-old leadership skills had worked, and so that night came, and he teaches on this same passage, and he says, and I have 
put a microphone here at the front. We're not doing that this morning. He says, I have put a microphone here at the front and Jesus is asking each of you, what do you want me to do for you? And I want you to come and answer that question. Forget that there are thousands of your students around you. I just want you to come to the front and talk to Jesus. That was not what I had meant when I said altar call. I wanted something private and personal up at the front. And as we were sitting there, and I was incredibly anxious, one of the guys from our team stood up and started walking to the front. Now, he was in charge of follow-up, so I thought he was going to get on the mic and say, and by the way, if you want to fill out a card, I'll be over here, right? He didn't do that. I noticed he was crying. I thought, this is not going to be good. He walked to the front, and on the microphone, he confessed to God, but in front of all the rest of us, he needed healing because he had impure thoughts all the time about the women on campus. And you could just feel the girls all around us like, oh, my, you know, like, was he talking about me? It was incredibly uncomfortable. And then he went into great details of some of his struggles with lust and pornography. And I thought, okay, this just took a terrible turn. What have you done, Dave Busby? Then the next person comes up, and this is a young woman, and she starts crying and asking God to heal her from her eating disorder. Then a young man comes up and he starts yelling at God on the microphone, angry that his father had died before he had made peace with him. And then one after another kept coming to the front for an hour. Now, this was parents' night. This was faculty night. And the faculty was there watching this. The parents were there watching this. My parents were sitting right there. Now, in my Baptist church, we didn't do anything that exuded emotion. We weren't even allowed to clap after the, someone sang a solo. In part because me and my buddies tried to be the last person to clap. And my buddy Robert would always win. I just couldn't. He would clap during the sermon, like five minutes later. So they banned all clapping at all times. So for an hour, this is happening. My parents are sitting there, and something terrible happens. I know I need to go to the front. I didn't want to go to the front. Everybody else could be a little more anonymous, but I'd been doing the announcements with that really tall girl all week. And so I just prayed right there, because I knew God could hear my prayer. But I still felt, after about an hour and a half of this happening, I was supposed to go to the front. The line was short enough, and I just went. I could barely get the words out. I just said, God, I don't love people. I don't care that people are lost without you. I don't care that people are hurting. Help me love people. And I walked back to my seat, tears coming down my face, and my dad kind of pats me on the back, kind of like, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I can't believe my parents stayed this whole time. They're so... That's not their style, right? And then I remembered, oh yeah, I gave them a ride. <laughs> now, I don't know if revival happened that night. I don't know if revival took place on our campus, but I know something changed inside of me. I began to see people differently. I began to see people the way I think God sees us. God sees me with grace and with kindness. Kind of that phrase, be patient with everyone because we're all going through something. It's a paraphrase. But that became true of me, and it changed the trajectory of my life. And in fact, I ended up 
marrying a woman who felt called to be a pastor's wife, when we moved to Seattle, and then we moved to Los Angeles, and we moved to Austin, we have this sense of wanting to be in places where people don't like church or even don't like Christianity. We want to be in those places to show that Jesus actually is who he said he is. And people in the name of Christianity have done a lot of damage. Something changed in me. And what began to happen is I began to see that that love serves. You see, love is not just words. It's an attitude and it's an action. Now, I'll be honest. This may be the least appealing of all the ways that we demonstrate love, right? It's easy to talk about how love cares and how love listens and how love engages, but love serves might require a little bit of sweat. It might require a little bit of inconvenience. See, but our perspective can change our attitude. See, servanthood is an unnatural posture for us. We don't always love the idea of serving people because we operate with our own agenda. That's the most important thing. Have you ever been to a restaurant where the person seemed to be annoyed that you were there, the waiter? They're not usually very good. Waiters that are annoyed that you're asking them to do stuff. I've been in situations where I'm like, look, just let me go to the back and I'll put in my order, right? If I'm inconveniencing you. But compare that to when you've been to a restaurant where the server wants to serve you. You start to feel like a king or a queen, like Kate Middleton or Prince William, my favorite bald royal. (laughs) You, You just feel so special when someone's willing to serve you like that. See, if you and I show up to our lives every day with our own agenda as the most important thing, then serving others will never come naturally. But what if every day we woke up with an awareness that we actually live in someone else's universe, that we're using borrowed breath and blood and time, and we just say to God, God, who is it today you want me to serve? Who is it today you want me to encourage? Dallas Willard, a professor out of USC, a follower of Jesus, said this, there's no particular reason why things should go my way because I'm not in charge of the universe. Some of you are writing that down. I did not know that. that is, that's difficult for us. It is. It's hard. It's, we live as the center of our own universe. Reminds me of Rudy, where the priest comes up to Rudy, the football player, one of the greatest five foot four football players to ever live. And he says, I know two things. There is a God and I'm not him. See, most of us begin with the assumption that what I need or what I want is the most important thing and we become irate when we don't get it. And there's a definition for that. That's called entitlement. And that's how we live. That's literally what our culture teaches us. But if we can begin to see that my way isn't king and that there's really no reason why things should go my way, then we can begin to see the needs around us. We begin to discover that we have more bandwidth and ability to serve others. See, really, at its core, the issue is trusting God. Do we trust God to take care of my needs? Do I trust God enough to quit being preoccupied with myself and know that God is on it? to get to the place where we realize that God will really serve us in love so that we can be free to serve others. See, serving others in love is an attitude that flows from your perspective as someone being served by God in his universe. 
Let me say that again. Serving others in love is an attitude that flows from your perspective as someone being served by God in his universe. So a couple weeks ago when we began the series, John Burke looked at the story of the Good Samaritan and just briefly, and he used it as an example that there were these seminary students who were going to go teach on the Good Samaritan and they put someone who was injured along the path and almost all of them went right by that guy because they had to go teach other people to serve those who were injured along the road. And then when they were told, hey, you got a little extra time, but you should go ahead and go on your way, then those folks were more often willing to stop. But whenever someone was too busy, they were in a hurry, they seemed to go right by the person in need. Well, I want to look at that story just a little bit again, because I think it points out two of the barriers that keep us from living out this idea that love serves. Here's how that whole story came about. It's in Luke chapter 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? Well, the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked, well, who's my neighbor? The lawyer is saying, look, I understand that the scriptures tell us to love everyone life by life, but who is my neighbor? Who is everyone? Where do I draw the line? How do I prioritize? I need you to define this, Jesus, because there's some, there's needs all around. There's too many needs for me to even personally meet. And so then Jesus tells a story, Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, this is a religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. If you remember, Samaritans in that day and age were considered unclean, they They were half-breeds. They were basically ethnically impure. They were religiously different. And so Jesus often told stories about the Samaritans and put them in a good light here in this particular story. And we saw that Jesus actually interacted with Samaritans in ways that even his followers didn't think was appropriate. Jesus was always pushing against man-made barriers that we create between us. He was saying, if people look differently, believe differently, come from a different backgrounds, you can still love them. They are still your neighbor. In fact, in this case, the Samaritan is the one that's good, and the religious leaders were the ones that were bad. The priest and the Levite walked on the other side. They saw a need, and they tried to avoid it. See, barrier number one is callousness. Callouses are only good for playing guitar. Otherwise, when we have a calloused heart, it actually keeps us from meeting the needs of those around us. I mean, maybe the Levite and the priest were busy. Maybe they were trying to stay clean and avoid the Samaritan as they were taught. Maybe it was too uncomfortable to get involved. Simply, it's just easier not to respond when a need is around us. But see, here's the problem with having a calloused heart. 
A calloused heart doesn't just tune out the people you want to tune out. It actually creates distance between you and the people you want to care about. Your calloused heart keeps you from being able to love the people that you actually do love. We begin to become callous towards everyone life by life. When you numb out to the other's needs, you can't just pick and choose. You start to automatically treat those close to you more brusquely and indifferently as well. Just as love will train our hearts to serve the need in front of us, indifference will train our hearts to ignore the needs around us. That's why it usually takes an extreme need to arouse our compassion. Jesus tells a story of of an upsetting experience. Someone who was injured and on the side of the road, beaten up by robbers. And you would think it's in emergencies that we would respond. And oftentimes that is the only thing that gets us to action. What I love about our church family is there are people who are part of our community who serve without recognition. They've discovered that serving, not for the purpose of becoming great in the eyes of God, but because of all that God has done for them is what motivates them. And we even have an incredibly generous community, not only investing their time, but also their finances. There are people in our church family who give 10, 15, 20% of their income right at the beginning of every paycheck. And we have many people we've commissioned. They are literally commissioned to be those who serve people in our community. And what's really beautiful about this church family is, you might not realize this, but a a portion of what we give together is always available whenever there's a need. And so when Hurricane Michael hit Florida, we were able to give some money towards Convoy of Hope. This week, when the floods happened along the Llano River and along the Colorado River system, we've already mobilized money to serve, to make a difference through the Austin Disaster Relief Network. Some of you are a part of the Austin Disaster Relief Network. Some of you had asked about my parents. My parents live on Lake LBJ. I'll show you a couple pictures. The flood came in, and that's the dock, but then at its peak, here's the next picture. And the dock has disappeared, and there's the boathouse. Fortunately, you can see there's two levels of backyard, and it didn't get up to the second level. My parents were incredibly fortunate, but look at these boats floating by. Two people died and lots of property lost. And then you might know Ralph and Billy Korstad. Their son and his family moved. Uh, I think it's to Kingsland. Their, Their place was completely destroyed. Let me show you pictures. They purchased it four months ago. And just go to the next one. Complete and total loss. Tree limbs throughout the home. Go to the next one. Look at that fish in their yard. And what's interesting, in messaging back and forth with Ralph and Billy even this morning, it's a complete and total loss. They were able to salvage their computers and their pets and certainly their kids. They rushed out and came back to complete and total devastation. But but they've had a glimmer of hope because there are people from the different churches around, and they're including their own church, that have come to help them clean up. Even as they're trying to salvage anything before just knocking it down with a bulldozer. And they have people that they met in their church that are going to let them stay with them while they rebuild so they can stay in the area and their kids can continue going to school. See, it's people of faith, inconvenience, that have said, you know what? 
because of what God has done for me, I'm going to allow myself to be inconvenienced for others. See, sometimes it's these emergencies that compel us to action, and other times we miss the needs that are all right around us because we're just too busy. See, love often interrupts. We need to become willing to be inconvenienced, to serve, to sweat. I want us to continue to give financially, and I love that we do that, and we're going to keep doing that, but I also want us to, with sweat equity, go to the places that need help, like we did after Hurricane Harvey in Houston. I want us to be known by the way that we serve and the way that we love. And so what we need to do is we need to anticipate inconvenience. We need to allow serving to become a way of life. We need to reshuffle our priorities and plans, ready to move at a moment's notice. This is actually how we train away the callousness around our heart, is experimenting with being inconvenienced, looking for opportunities throughout the day. And it can be something as simple as cleaning the dishes, even though it's not your turn. Picking up the trash whenever you see it, and it's everywhere. Just looking for ways that you can serve. But here's another barrier. Not only is it callousness, but, but it's messiness. Uh, if you decide to make serving a way of life, I'm going to warn you, it, it gets messy. See, the Samaritan in Jesus' story had mastered this habit of stepping towards the interruption. Look, look again what happened. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, serving usually takes us into personal space of the person that we're serving. As we begin to meet a need, we see another need that needs to be met. The Samaritan saw one need. This guy needs a bandage. The next thing you know, he realized, okay, he needs shelter and ongoing care. Then he realized, oh, he needs someone to pay for these services. And then he realized he needed to come back for ongoing treatment. See, once you get in, it gets messy. Because that one deed could lead to many other deeds, and that's messy. But here's the beauty. When you're part of a church family, it's not just you all alone. That together we can make such a difference when we serve alongside each other. This is where trusting God comes into play. Jesus is giving us a story, an example of what loving a neighbor actually might look like. See, love meets a need when it sees one. Now, I know when you watch Hollywood films and the romance of love and the cultural images of love, they, they seem so intuitive and beautiful, but in its essence, love is incredibly practical. Love means meeting a need when you see one. And unfortunately for us, Jesus is pretty loose on the details. And for you A-types and planners, that can be incredibly frustrating. Just tell me how to check serving off the box. How do I get my gold star so I can move on to the next thing I want to accomplish? See, this is one of the reasons that that walking in step with the Spirit of God and allowing Him to guide you, acting on those promptings from that still, small voice can become an incredibly important thing. That's why we're doing a, a workshop here this weekend called Hearing God that will help you along the way. But if I were to say, all right, I want everybody to go and wash your neighbor's car, 
If I were to say that, you might have some angry neighbors. They didn't want you to wash their car. In fact, you did it wrong, or, or, or because you did it, now it's raining outside. So, right, if you go to your coworker tomorrow and say, hey, I, I was listening yesterday at my church, and I was told to come and ask you how I can serve you. That might go well, it might not. What do you mean, serve me? What's, what's behind this? What's your agenda, right? Instead, having a conversation, getting to know them and listening and hearing what they have a need, like we heard last week from Karen Craxton, where she heard about her boss, who she didn't like at first, going on a trip, knew she had a dog, and asked, can I babysit your dog? And after that, they became fast friends. Dogs and children are a fast way into people's hearts. <laughs> but here's the beauty. This is a community where you serve. I've seen it happen. I mean, even just yesterday, we had our fall fest. By the way, after monsoon rain for a week, yesterday was like the first day it didn't rain on Saturday, right? Isn't that amazing? It's a miracle. Now, we had plans to fill this whole room with inflatables, and, but in the end, it was just pretty much as we imagined. We got rid of the dunk tank, which I'm pretty grateful for, actually. <laughs> it would have been really cold. But, but you served, and you know, there are people that had never walked in these doors that came yesterday, and they felt loved, and their kids got face painted, and they had a great time. In fact, I know this is the complete opposite of what I said earlier, because I know you were there yesterday just because you were compelled to, to make a difference. But if you served yesterday at Fall Fest, would you just stand up so we can thank you? Go ahead, stand up. Don't be shy. Give them a hand. <laughs> grateful for you guys. So thankful. These... These two over here, uh, William and Shelley, have been leading this initiative the last several years. Can we thank them especially? Thank you guys so much. But here's one of the tricky things, maybe even one of the messy things about serving. When you serve, you don't necessarily see the result. You don't know the impact you might have had in the hearts of others. And so some of you, I mean, you're serving your neighbors, you're putting little placards in your yard and having conversations with people. And some of you are serving your coworkers, inviting them to service on Sunday. And I've seen some of you come in the morning and come back with a friend at six o'clock. You're doing this and you're seeing the beauty is when you lose your life in serving others, that's actually how you find your life. Karen Davis, a few years ago, after driving around South Austin for long enough, just saw such a need for people who are homeless and once we had this kitchen, she asked, can we start making coffee? And so now some of you come on Saturday mornings and make coffee and take it under the bridge where we serve people. And they've told us it's the best coffee they've had all week. And you are a part of that. And if you want to be more engaged with what we're doing, even a process for helping people who want to be off the streets, get off the streets, then go to Starting Gate today and just sign up at the end. And when it asks, like, what are you passionate about? Just let us know so that we can help you find your calling, live out your passion by serving others with others. But what can move us past callousness, what can move us past the messiness is when we realize that we were that guy beaten up on the side of the road. That the creator of the universe left heaven to come to earth. Born of a virgin, 
living a perfect life, teaching with authority, but ultimately taking on himself what we deserve, dying on the cross. But see, here's the beauty is you cannot keep love in the grave. He rose on that third day. If nothing else motivates you, when you realize that you were that broken, beaten person on the side of the road and he stopped for you, he pursued you, he is there to heal you, that you might find healing and bring that healing to others. And so I want to encourage you, perhaps your next step today is to just say yes to what Jesus has done for you. In fact, next week we're going to celebrate baptism. And maybe that's your next step. Just baptism is a beautiful symbol of what's already happened in your heart, that you've died to the old life, you've been risen to a new life, that you've been washed clean. Now, if you've been baptized as an infant or as a, a young child and it was a decision your parents made, in many ways, this is the fulfillment of what they decided for you. This is you saying, what they decided for me is real now in my life. I've chosen to follow Jesus and follow his example of being baptized. Or maybe for you, your next step is to act on that prompting that God has given you to serve that person across the street, across the cubicle, across the class. Just allow God to show you the adventure he has for you each day that we might live a life of serving. As we conclude our time together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you stopped for us. The world has beaten us up and we found ourselves in need of help and you were there for us. Now, God, might we become healed and able to go out and bring the healing we've experienced to others. God, give courage to each person in this room to take their next step, whether it's saying yes to you for the first time or saying yes to living a life of service or, or acting on that prompting you might give even in this moment. God, may we become people known by our love, that we would point towards you, the true Jesus, who did so much for us, that they might get past the religiosity and the worldwide religion known as Christianity that often has done a lot of damage because it didn't represent you. God, may we be those people that live upside down lives, advancing your kingdom because of our willingness to serve. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.